welcome to the Console Podcast. I'm David Mitten, co-founder of Console.dev, a free weekly newsletter highlighting the best and most interesting tools for developers. In this episode, I speak with Liz Rice, Chief Open Source Officer at Isovalent, the company behind the open source eBPF product Cilium. In this episode, we discuss BPF and why it is such a revolutionary approach to developing low-level kernel applications, how BPF can be used for observability, networking, and security, how developers should think about application security, and why all of these technologies are open source. We're keeping this to 30 minutes, so let's get started. I'm here with Liz Rice. Liz, thanks for joining the Console podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Let's start with a brief background. Tell us a little bit about what you're currently doing and how you got here. So I am currently the Chief Open Source Officer at Isovalent. And Isovalent is the original creating company of the Cilium project, which is uh, an eBPF-based Kubernetes CNI and much more in terms of networking, observability, and security. Uh, So yeah, I'm very focused on cloud-native networking and particularly eBPF at the moment. Excellent. So that leads into my first question, which is what is BPF? So it stands for Berkeley Packet Filter, and we kind of use the terms BPF and eBPF pretty interchangeably. The E stands for extended. But to be honest, it's really so much more than packet filtering now. You know, yeah. Berkeley it is the Berkeley lab. I never know whether to say Berkeley or Berkeley, but I'll <laughs> try and use both interchangeably. So it has its roots in packet filtering, but nowadays it's really so broad that I don't think the acronym means much. And mm-hmm. I really just like to describe it as making the kernel programmable. Right. I suppose it started as a packet filter and it's just evolved and BPF doesn't really stand for anything, although it does, but it doesn't. And it's just a really broad technology. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. And at what point did it become eBPF? What was that transition? So a couple of major changes And one was the introduction of a thing called maps. And maps are data structures that you can share between the kernel and user space or between different BPF programs running within the kernel so they can communicate with each other. I think that made a huge difference to what you could do with BPF. The scope of it became so much bigger. There was also some changes to the instruction set. I think that was a big deal for eBPF programmers and less of a big deal from a kind of conceptual, whereas maps are are a big conceptual change. So what are the use cases then? How would you describe it to a developer who's never heard of it about what they could do? So the reason why this is a big deal is that you can load an eBPF program into the kernel and it immediately takes effect and it changes the way the kernel behaves straight away. Now, this is in contrast to either loading a kernel module, which is quite a scary prospect, I think, in production, or waiting for a change to make its way through kernel development. If you want the kernel to behave in a different way, the the traditional way would be to propose that change and do some really hard work to make that change in the kernel. And if that change doesn't suit the rest of the community, it's not going to make it in. So that would point you more to the kernel module approach. You'd have to write your own custom code. And if anything went wrong, you'd crash your machine. What eBPF allows us to do is 
write programs that get verified on the fly. We should probably talk a bit about what verifying is, but it basically makes them safe to run. It ensures they can't crash the kernel. And you can change how the kernel is going to behave. We attach these programs to events and depending on what kind of event it is, is it a network packet arriving or a user space program making a system call, we can influence the way the kernel responds to that event. And that means we can change what it does immediately, dynamically, on the fly. And we can use that for security purposes. We can use it to mitigate kernel vulnerabilities. And we can use it for some amazing security observability functionality because we can see what's happening across the whole kernel. And we can use it to change networking behavior. So there's a ton of really cool ways we can use it. If we think about how involved the kernel is with everything that you do on a machine, we can use eBPF to influence that, to get involved with it, to observe it, you name it. Is there a list of events then that it, that you can trigger EBPF, EBPF programs from? Is that how it works? So there kind of is. There's, there's a list right. of different program types, of different types of event. But in reality, one of those types is a K-probe, and that's, you know, you can attach a K-probe anywhere in the kernel, um, literally anywhere in the 300 million lines of code that, <laughs> that exists. So there are a lot of different places you can attach to. Now, not all of those events or only a subset of those events are stable from one kernel version to the next. I can write an eBPF program that attaches to a kernel function, but there's no guarantee that that function will exist in the next release of the kernel. But there are some guarantees around, for example, the syscall interface. There are some attachment points related to the Linux security module interface. Those are stable. Networking interfaces that are stable. So uh, depending on how permanent you want your BPF program to be, there's a shorter or longer list of possible events. Right. And I suppose that explains why it has the packet filter name as the original name, because it was to do with very low level networking and that was very performance sensitive, but it's just being able to attach to all of these events now means that you can run very high performance, low level not scripts, but responses to events and run your own programs at those key points in the life cycle of a packet or an event happening in the kernel. Exactly. Yes, yes. And the kernel is essentially event-driven. So whatever whatever's happening, we can potentially write eBPF programs to, to respond to those events. Yeah. And we're talking about the Linux kernel here, right? Well, we're primarily talking about the Linux kernel, but in fact, Microsoft are now adding mm. eBPF support into Windows as well, which I think when I first heard it, I thought, how how can that possibly make sense? <laughs> but speaking with Dave Thaler from the Microsoft team, who's leading that project, and he explained to me how, you know, in reality, a lot of a lot of what we're talking about, particularly in networking, a TCP packet looks like a TCP packet, whether it's in Linux or Windows. So quite a lot of the data structures are the same. And this isn't going to apply across every possible event type. But in a lot of cases, actually, there's no reason why you couldn't run the same eBPF bytecode because it's running in essentially a virtual machine. Why not implement that virtual machine in a different operating system? And if it's given the same data in the same structure, it can be the same code on both 
on both operating systems, which I think is yeah. pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and is that why some people, I think Brendan Gregg has said in particular that BPF is the biggest operating systems change that he's seen in his career. Do you think that is why he's describing it like that? I don't know whether he said that before or after the Microsoft announcement, but I think in terms yeah. of the ability to have essentially bespoke kernel behavior, you know, you and I could be running the exact same kernel version, but actually have some pretty different kernel behavior. That's quite a radical change, I think. Mm. So why would you replace kernel modules with something written in BPF? So you mentioned verification. I would assume that's one of the big reasons. That is the big reason. I think in theory, we can write kernel modules to do anything, but the reality is <laughs> testing is hard, software development is hard, bugs <laughs> in the kernel give everybody a bad day. A, a kernel crash brings down the machine. And in the mainline kernel, we don't see much in the way of kernel crashes because it's so well hardened, it's so widely used. And by the mm. time you've got a Linux distribution that's using a kernel version that that's actually been tried and tested over the course of probably years to harden it. Kernel modules, if it's a bespoke kernel module, it won't have been through that same hardening process. So what's the difference with eBPF? It's the verifier. When we load a BPF program into the kernel, there's a just-in-time compilation process and there's this verification process that makes sure that it's safe to run, that it's going to run to completion, that you have to explicitly make a check on every pointer before you dereference it so that there is no possibility of dereferencing a null pointer. It checks that the kind of memory access that you're making within that program is appropriate for the kind of event you're looking at so that you're not accessing the wrong bits of memory from your program. So the verifier is there to make sure that by the time you actually get to execute that program in the kernel, it's going to run safely. And that gives a huge amount of confidence in being able to load and run BPF programs. And what does that look like from a developer perspective? Is there a separate language that you write in or does it hook into other languages? So you need a language that can be compiled into BPF bytecode. The, the code that we're actually executing in this BPF virtual machine has its own bytecode. It's very, very similar to like regular machine code, but um, uh, to make the compilation very, very fast. Mm -hmm. So today, to the best of my knowledge, there are two languages you can write in. One is C and one is Rust because those compile well, Clang compiles to BPF target bytecode and the Rust compiler does as well. But you are limited. Now, my knowledge of Rust is pretty small, so I can only, <laughs> only speak to it in theoretical terms. But in C, we talk about being a, a limited C because, for example, you can't write loops, or at least you have to unroll loops to allow the verification process to be sure that your program is going to run to completion. You can only use a certain set of BPF helper functions and only a subset of helper functions are going to be valid 
depending on the kind of event that has triggered your BPF program. So if I've got a network packet that looks like a, a socket buffer, then that packet, I can use some helper functions to allow me to access data within that packet, but I can't make a call to find out if it's if it's just come from the network. There's no process involved, so I can't make a call to find out what process is related to it. Whereas if I'm dealing with a BPF program that's attached to a system call, some process has made that system call. So I'm allowed to make helper function calls to tell me about that process, but I don't have a packet in my hand, so I can't make that kind of helper function call. Yeah. And this would be part of a, a larger application or a call in something like an agent that might be running somewhere or another application. Would you write an entire application to be run as a BPF module? So it's very dependent on the kind of program we're talking about. Right. You mentioned Brendan Gregg earlier, and he has written lots of standalone observability programs that have a, I don't know if they all fall into this model, but I think the majority of them at least, it's a, a single BPF program that attaches to a particular event and passes data about that event or metrics about that event into user space. And say, for example, OpenSnoop that will tell you when any process opens a file. And I think there are actually a small handful of BPF programs involved in that because you're looking at two different types of open system call and also looking for the close. I think it's something like that. So to implement that very small observability tool, you needed a small number of very simple BPF programs to attach to different places. Other examples might be load balancing, where you can attach to a thing called XDP, which is stands for Express Data Path, and it's a BPF event as soon as possible that a, a packet is received from a network interface. In fact, so early that some network interface cards will support offloading it to the network card. You can run the BPF program on the network card rather than in the CPU, which is pretty cool. And means that you can do manipulating those packets, maybe do DDoS protection or some load balancing functionality on that XDP event. As I say, potentially not even getting as far as the CPU. And in those cases, it is a standalone BPF program typically. Or you can have a series of programs that communicate with each other to do more complex functionality. And something like Cilium would be an example of that, where we're hooking into network packets arriving from the network card, but also into applications making, sending packets into sockets and other places in the network stack. And we're also hooking into what Kubernetes is doing to create pods and so on. So in that more complex example, we've got lots of BPF programs communicating either directly with each other through maps or through a user space agent that's kind of orchestrating the whole process. Right. So you mentioned security there, and that was one of the areas I 
discovered as part of my research for this, just learning about the different use cases. And I suppose the advantages that you talked about with security is just being able to get in front of pretty much everything else that's going to happen following an event, which could just be a single packet. So things that come to mind for me are like firewalls or the packet inspection, those kind of things. Can you say a little bit more about the use cases about security and how BPF plays a role there? Yeah. So as you say, firewalling, I mean, being able to look at packets and make decisions based on you know the source or destination or even the contents of those packets. Yeah. There's there's a whole world of network security that we can do with that. We can do Kubernetes network policy by looking at the source and destination entities involved and, and seeing whether they meet or don't meet network policy. Some really interesting things around kernel vulnerability mitigation. So uh, a good example of this is packet of death. So there's been a few examples where a kernel vulnerability has meant that if you sent a particularly crafted packet, it would exploit this kernel vulnerability and crash the machine. And with BPF, we can hook into that XDP event, look for those particularly formed packets and just discard them. And the really great thing about that is you've just got the ability to mitigate that. All you need is that BPF program loaded into your production machines and you are no longer vulnerable to that kernel vulnerability. You don't have to upgrade your kernel. There have also been some examples of Spectre mitigations that have been possible through, through BPF. So yeah, there's quite a range of things that can be, I'm going to say, patched by loading a a BPF program, which I think is pretty exciting. And then there's a whole class of things that we can do around runtime security. So particularly in a cloud-native environment where you might have microservices. Microservices typically are supposed to only do one thing or a small amount of function. Mm. So it becomes quite easy to reason about what that microservice is supposed to do, like what executables are running inside that Kubernetes pod or inside that container and what network connections it's supposed to be allowed to to make. And we can use eBPF programs to observe exactly what is being executed inside each container. We can map that against a profile or or some kind of policy, we can, for example, say, this is an Nginx pod. I'm not expecting to see a cryptocurrency miner executable running in it. That's probably not what was intended. (laughs) And also we can get this contextual information. So if we do see some kind of malicious activity, we can look at, well, what was the process that was running? What executable was that process? What pod was it running in? When did it start? When when did this malicious activity happen? And get all the kind of forensic information that might be needed to figure out how, how the host or how the container was compromised in the first place. So lots of really cool security tooling that exists today and is also being built in the future. So is this something that developers need to think about themselves or is there an, a product that they just plug in and they don't need to worry about it? What's the balance? What role should developers play? I would say that for the majority of developers, 
eBPF is going to be a technology that they will use rather than write mm. in much the same way that most of us are not kernel developers. Yeah. It is totally possible to to write the kind of hello world. I've I've done it myself in a few conference talks. You know, you can you can write eBPF hello world. You can write some really interesting and powerful tools with a few lines of code. But once you start getting into things that are a bit more complex, you start needing knowledge of the kernel event that's triggered it and the context of that. If you've got a socket buffer in your hand, well, what's in that socket buffer? Not everybody necessarily will have that knowledge. So I think it's more likely that for the majority of developers, there'll be using tools, things like Cilium and Falco and Pixie that are all examples of EPPF-based projects in the CNCF. But I think it's really useful to have an understanding of why EBPF is so powerful because of its position in the kernel. So even if as a developer, you're not necessarily going to write EBPF code yourself, having that mental model, I think, is is really helpful. If developers are just wrapping their applications inside containers, is there anything that they should be thinking about when they're doing that as part of the, the build and deploy process? And then once those go into production, how should they be thinking about securing them? This is one of the real beauties of eBPF for cloud native. Because eBPF runs in the kernel, every container on a given host is sharing the same kernel. So the kernel is involved every time an application does anything interesting. If you're writing user space code, well, I think most developers don't even think of it as they don't even think of the division between user space and kernel. And what people may not be aware of, but I think is actually kind of interesting, as soon as you want to do anything that touches any hardware at all, you know, whether it's writing something to the screen or reading memory or writing to a file or interfacing with the network, the kernel has to get involved. So pretty much anything that you're going to do, apart from adding up a couple of numbers or something, <laughs> the kernel will know about it. Yeah. And that means if we can hook observability or security tooling into the kernel, we don't need to worry about instrumenting individual applications or individual containers. We don't have to worry about configuration. It can all be done from the kernel side to say, yeah, I'm interested in these kinds of events. Tell me about them regardless of which pod it's happening in or which container it's happening in. How does that apply to VMs? Because actually different containers, everyone thinks of them as an isolated environment, but they're not really, whereas VMs are supposed to be actually isolated. But of course, the host can still see everything that's going on. Is that where the BPF events and the activity would happen on the host? How does that work with VMs? So each virtual machine has its own kernel mm. and therefore would need its own independent set of eBPF instrumentation. So you can see from, from each kernel, you can see all of the processes that are running on that machine. I think a lot of people are not necessarily aware that containerized processes, from the kernel's perspective, they're just processes. Yeah. They might have some <laughs> little differences, but they're essentially just processes. And therefore, they're, they're all visible to eBPF. But if you have a host machine running different virtual machines, 
I think when I've used the word host earlier, I've been thinking of Kubernetes host rather than like a bare metal host where you don't have necessarily visibility into the guest operating systems. Yeah. And do you think that becomes a bit more confused with the use of something like Firecracker, where the developer might think they're running in a container, but actually the infrastructure has just converted all to VMs? Yes, I I do think that. (laughs) It's not a problem that I have encountered yet in the wild, but mm. I think it will be it will be an interesting question. I think as the eBPF tooling market matures, we'll see cloud providers offering different ways of using these tools in conjunction with their different isolation mechanisms. I guess another example would be managed containers, things like Fargate or even serverless like Lambda. If you want to benefit from the eBPF tooling, you couldn't just apply that into Fargate or Lambda. It would need support from the from the cloud provider to do that. And I'm sure that kind of that kind of evolution will probably happen because eBPF is so powerful. It's, It's a natural way to get a lot of this observability information to users right so that's the where the observability use case comes in because you want to know what your code's doing whereas you might be able to just let the cloud provider deal with the security side of things yeah i think potentially or they might want to allow you to have custom policies Mm. that are then enforced by a, a provided security layer that could be implemented in ebpf and of course all of these tools and technologies are open source do you think that's a critical factor in them being successful? Well, so eBPF programs running in the kernel actually have to comply with kernel licensing rules. So there's actually yeah. some enforcement of you actually have to declare if you want to use a GPL helper function, because some of the helper functions are GPL, you have yeah. to declare that your code is GPL. So it's actually kind of more enforced than... <laughs> than some technologies. So kind of inevitably, the eBPF code itself has to be open source. The same thing doesn't necessarily apply to the user space side. So for example, in Cilium, Cilium is an open source project, but we do have some enterprise proprietary extensions that we build as isovalent, the commercial company. Mm -hmm. So I mean, do I think that that the open source nature is important? I absolutely do. I think cloud native would not be where it is today if we weren't all able to collaborate on this open infrastructure or these open infrastructure projects. Yeah. For sure. And what's your take on the funding challenges that open source has had over the years and how we make them sustainable? Because you've been involved with open source for, for a long time. You've, you've probably seen a lot of these up close. Yeah, I think a lot of people get a very romantic idea of open source and we'll build it and then magically the the money tree will just grow in our back garden. And it doesn't work like that. I think we have to recognize that when you write open source code, you are giving away that code. And that therefore is something you can't sell. You have to provide value in some other ways. And that's that could be your expertise, it could be proprietary extensions, it could be support, it could be training. There's probably a hundred different 
ways that you could add value that are not just the code as it is. And I think people are are kidding themselves when they think they're going to get paid for something they've given away. Even those sponsorship models, I think, are less about paying for the code and more about paying for the longevity of the code, the future dependency on that code. In reality, more and more enterprises are using open source. They want to know that it's going to be maintained. They want to know that people are continuing to develop it. So it's in their interests as enterprises to find ways to fund that development, whether that's through paying developers directly, whether it's paying commercial companies to employ developers to work on that open source code. There's all sorts of ways. But I think in the end, it has to result in developers being paid either a salary to just write the code or coming up with something else that they can sell alongside the code that they're writing to to provide value. Right. And running a lot of these services is actually quite difficult, right? So if you can pay someone who's the expert to run it, and I suppose that's why SaaS and cloud infrastructure has become so popular. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I I think that's a, (laughs) it kind of almost lines up with the debates around Web3 and and decentralized (laughs) services, where I think how many of us actually run our own email services these days almost none of us we want somebody else to do the spam filtering for us and yeah you know there are all (laughs) sorts of reasons why i have no interest in running my own email service and there's a lot of good reasons why people will want to pay somebody else for (laughs) looking after things for them on their behalf yeah absolutely Well, before we wrap up then, I have two lightning questions for you. So the first one is, what interesting tools or dev tools are you playing around with at the moment? I, a few months ago, moved to a Mac M1, and that's meant I'm playing this game of having an ARM chip where lots of the tools that I previously used are x86. So that has meant I'm using a lot more cloud virtual machines than I used to. I used to run a lot of virtual machines on my laptop. Now that I'm running more things remotely, it has led me to be a big fan of VS Code remote and trying to set that up in a really easy way so that I can just plug it into my huge variety of virtual machines that I keep spinning up. Yeah, it's funny that the the M1 hardware is so amazing and so fast. And yeah, a lot of the stuff that we want to be able to run on it, you have to offload to the cloud somewhere because it just doesn't support the architecture yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think things are moving pretty fast. A, a lot of things are being compiled, but so many times it's just that one thing that yeah. I want that isn't available. And yeah, so I'm falling back to the cloud. It means that when I'm doing conference demos, in the past, I've always said I'm never relying on the network. I want everything to be running on my laptop where I can control it. And now I'm breaking that rule. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second question you've partially answered, what is your current tech setup? What hardware and software are you using? Yeah, so I guess I already answered with having my MacBook Pro. I am lucky enough to have access to sort of VMs in all the cloud providers when I when I want them. And because eBPF continues to evolve and some of the newer features require a pretty modern kernel, I'm constantly spinning up a particular kernel or a particular distribution because I want 
a certain kernel version so that I can try a particular feature. And I guess that's another advantage of, of having access to the cloud. Yeah, get access to all the cutting edge tech and the software. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Thanks for joining us, Les. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Console DevTools podcast. Please let us know what you think on Twitter. I'm at David Mitten, and you can follow at console.dev. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us in your podcast player. And if you're playing around with or building any interesting DevTools, please get in touch. Our email's in the show notes. See you next time.